We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. A lot of the discussion of facial recognition focuses on law enforcement. We thought we'd take a different tack and look at the commercial uses and the market for facial recognition technology. Our guests today are Benji Hutchinson, the Vice President of Washington, D.C. Operations and Federal Business for the NEC Corporation, and Brent Bombeck, who's the Director of Government Relations for NEC. Uh, stay tuned. So uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, we wanted to talk about, you know, that facial recognition has been in the news a lot, but the news isn't always covering everything that's going on or maybe as accurate as we might hope. So I, th I thought we'd start out with a kind of a different tack on this and ask you, tell us about commercial use. Tell us about the commercial market for facial recognition, because I think a lot of people don't associate it with the fact that this is a a potentially big commercial market that would actually help customers. So what do you want to tell us on the commercial side? Yeah. Hey, this is, uh, this is Benji. I'll, I'll tackle that one and we'll see if, if Brent has anything to add. You're absolutely right, Jim. I, you know, what we see in the newspapers quite often is public sector or law enforcement or border control use cases of facial recognition, but increasingly we're seeing facial recognition across the spectrum in the commercial market. And what we often hear associated is uh, customer experience or digital transformation, right? Technology always loves buzzwords, and those are the new, the new buzzwords. So customer experience, CX, and then digital transformation, DX. And the use cases that we typically see are ones that, uh, that you might expect where we want to decrease friction and uh, provide more of a contactless experience. And those use cases are things like payment systems, right? Um, authentication for different platforms like your phone, uh, like at, like you would see on an Apple iPhone, but also um, you would also see it for things like loyalty programs or, you know, in the aviation sector, for example, uh, when you check your bags or you go through the security line and you want to go to a VIP lounge, that's another use case. We're also seeing it in casinos. You know, uh, we're also seeing, I don't know if you saw that yesterday or two days ago at the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, there was a huge announcement where they announced that they would be using or incorporating facial recognition into their home kit that enables uh, users to identify people who might come to their front door. And if they are tagged in their photo album, the system would announce to the home that that person is at the front door. So... You know, we just we see a lot of different applications for facial recognition that are outside of the normal police or or national security or homeland defense use cases. What what does the market look like? I mean, are people receptive? Are companies uh, buying this stuff? I mean, I didn't see the Apple story. I think that's pretty cool. But what's the what's the sort of deployment path here for the technology? First big companies, first retail, or, or what? You know, I have to say, I think retail is going to be one of the, the later deployments, the, the later adopters. Um, I think what we're seeing initially, obviously, places where there's um, a high demand with a, a lot of high volume of 
people, you know, I know we were, we're talking about pre-COVID-19, but the travel industry has changed dramatically. But before it changed, there was a real demand to decrease the wait times. But we still see the same challenges in any place where large, large crowds will eventually begin to, to gather again, such as amusement parks, where you want to have less friction, less contact, and you want to increase the throughput. I think that, you know, as we look to solve this pandemic uh, and reopen, but also prepare for the next pandemic, contactless or touchless technologies uh, are going to be very much in demand. And so whether it's a theme park or a concert venue or a concert hall or potentially even other places like restaurants or bars, I think you're going to see more demand for this technology. And that's what we've seen. We've seen, like I said, gaming, casinos, aviation, those businesses do want to adopt the technology. And and also, it's it's opt in, right? So um, it makes it uh, less threatening for consumers. That's interesting. I knew casinos were early adopters, but I hadn't thought about how the desire for more contactless uh, exchanges is going to drive the the industry. And one of the things that we were looking at before, and when the, when I was over in uh, in uh, Roslyn uh, talking to you guys the last time. We talked about how this might change your airport experience and how you might, you know, go from long wait times to just sort of walking through. Right. Uh, I've seen some of the deployments for uh, cardless retail. I think there's some there, but you know, if you want to talk about that sector a little, because I, one of the things we found is people, at least they used to before the virus, people loved airport stories. So, what does the facial recognition airport look like? I, you know, it's it's a great question, and and I still think the vision is there, and I think that once we come back, and once you know we, once people begin to come become comfortable with flying again, I, I I foresee that biometric technology will still be just as much in demand. So when you want to take a trip, the first thing you're going to do is search some sort of app or some sort of website to to determine if there's flights available, and once you did, you find one and you want to. Uh, log in and, and, and pay for that flight and schedule the flight, a lot of air carriers are starting to migrate towards or adopt technologies that allow people to take a selfie and attach that to their record, opt in, and then that will enable all sorts of services at the airport or in the aviation or the transportation environment that will make the experience better. It'll make it more frictionless, more contactless. And we've already got customers such as Delta Airlines, uh, Lufthansa, and also Star Alliance who are looking to adopt this technology. So you've already taken your selfie, you arrive at the airport, you no longer have to interact with anyone to check your bags. There'll be a kiosk where you'll, you'll uh, verify your face, validate your identity to drop your bags. You'll tag your bags with a sticker. You can walk through security uh, in the future, TSA, and you won't have to present a boarding card or your ID. You can use your face. And then once you're in the airport environment, you can use your face for different things like going into the VIP lounge or potentially uh, buying something from a vendor, whether that be buying a cheeseburger or a coffee or a beer. A lot of airlines are looking, and airports as well, they're looking to figure out ways to work with their vendors to enable that type of frictionless experience. And then, like we've seen in the news for a long time, CBP and others who want to take advantage of that technology for those that are exiting the country, but also entering the country to use their face as well. So, and we're, and yeah, we're, I think the selling point then when, from the last conversation we had that I've tried it on people I've talked to both here and in, in other countries. And I think convenience is the big selling point for this is that when people here 
you know, air, everyone has had airline, airport, airport experiences of long delays. And when you tell them this could make it go away, they're suddenly a lot more, a lot more interested. Absolutely. If, if, if you tell somebody, you know, you're going to show up, if you show up an hour early and, and the line's longer than you expected, you might, loot, you might miss your flight, right? That's, that's one piece. And then also once you're inside, if you, you know, you've got a race to your gate and then, you know, there may be a, some sort of hang up there, all those choke points yeah. call, give people anxiety. So yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the convenience factor. How important is opt-in to all this? I mean, is that going to be the thing that comforts consumers or do you need something else? I, I think opt-in is critical. Brent, I don't know if you want to say a few words on that from the policy perspective, but I can tell you that from the customers we talk to, opt-in is critical. Yeah, for sure. For, for sure. I totally agree with you, Benji. You know, for, for all these commercial deployments, um, you know, that's really a, a fundamental aspect to it. These are things that are benefits to the consumer um, and they want to give them that option. And I think r- retailers and, and, um, you know, institutions, enterprises realize that now uh, and have, right? The customers want to have those types of choices. They want to ha- be able to have the ability to choose if they want that experience and some may not. And that's a legitimate uh, <laughs> a legitimate uh, opinion and, and perspective on yeah. those folks. So I think that's that's really been a fundamental aspect to all this. And I think why it's been successful uh, in so many of those deployments when, the, when folks have that, that option. Yeah, I think it'll be a conversion experience. It's like... Uh... You know the um, fingerprint tracing for your uh, your re-entry, uh, global entry. You know, and so when people see glo- global entry, I was one of the first to use it. And you, you walked in; it was about twenty seconds from uh, <laughs> to get through the line, and you could see everyone else looking at you. And now it's it's you know it's longer. So we need that next uh, next technology. And and you know what, Jim, the DHS is looking into enabling facial recognition on those kiosks as a part of that global entry experience. That is going to be the next modality that will be rolled out in the next couple of years. I, I was going to ask about that. I mean, what do you see? We we always obsess on law enforcement, but what do you see the other government uses being? And, you know, one of the issues there is if it's opt-in, how does that change the experience for the citizen in interacting with some government agency like um, CBP or whoever? I think the two that you should keep your eye on uh, is uh, TSA, excuse me, the two that you keep your eye on are TSA and CBP, right? So TSA at those document checking, uh, the, the TDCs, the document checkers, when you go up and they ask you to see your your boarding card and your driver's license or your passport, right? And they take out that funny blue light and they scribble something on there. Um, you know, they have been looking, TSA has been looking at upgrading that experience to decrease the lines and make it more automated. So deploying facial recognition to do a, a verification where you check the face that's on the document to the person that's presenting the document in real time is going to be one big leap forward. And then also, as we mentioned, coming in and out of the country for international travelers, using that global entry, if you're a global entry person, augmenting it with fingerprints, or excuse me, adding facial recognition to the fingerprints is going to be something that, uh, you know, that that I think is going to elevate the the experience and, and, and get customers and consumers and citizens excited again, right? They want to be able to get through those lines real quickly and, and have less of a laborious experience with the government. Have you guys looked at the international market for this? I mean, how do other countries use it? Is that something that you'd expect NEC to be looking at? 
We, we have and we do. As you know, uh, we're an international company, so we're really uh, active all over the world. And, and obviously, we're most active uh, in parts of Asia. And so Japan has really embraced this. And so, you know, they've, they've done face and finger for uh, all citizens or excuse me, all foreign nationals coming into the country. But they're also starting to adopt more technologies for people who want to uh, more seamlessly come in and out of the country. In Singapore, we see uh, Iris is making uh, a play. Uh, they've deployed that technology for border control over the past couple of years, in addition to some of the more traditional biometrics. So looking at that face, finger, and Iris combination is something that, that, that we've seen an interest in. The question is going to be, are some of these larger markets going to have an interest in how quickly are they going to have an interest in adopting all of those modalities at once? Yeah, Can I think... I talk- Go ahead. Sorry, Jim. I would just I would just add, in particular, in that in the aviation space, it's interesting to watch. I, I mean, the U.S. I think for sure is not in the the cutting edge leadership position necessarily on these. You're seeing a lot of international markets, international airports and airlines. You know, in a very cutthroat competition to get those business travelers or pleasure travelers to want to travel through their airports, where they're going to make that you know that long haul connection and trying to improve those. Uh, airport experiences, and this is definitely one of those one of the aspects of of improving that customer experience. So um, I think obviously something we're seeing yeah. grow uh, internationally in the U.S. is almost a little bit in catch up mode in the in the domestic travel space. This this is sort of a blue sky question, but how how big do you see the deployment being, say, in five years? I mean, when you think about you know hospitals or doctors' offices or supermarkets, I mean, what do, what do you think the ultimate market will be your ultimate being five years for facial recognition you know jim uh, it's a good question and uh what the markets that we have definitely started to to focus on for the future are obviously travel and tourism is one we've already covered that because we've had a lot of success with uh, star alliance and i think their hub and spoke model is going to be something that, uh, that we, we keep an eye on because a lot of those airlines who want to opt in and offer that service to their customers, I think that's going to be something. Uh, but also hospitals, healthcare. I think that, again, riffing off of this contactless, touchless experience, especially in the wake of a pandemic, we see that as something that has a lot of potential. One of the things I'm sure you've seen in the news is everybody's focus on elevated body temperature screening. And we've been able to work with a lot of vendors that do thermal screening to combine facial recognition with the thermal screening using infrared technology. And so I think that at least in the near term, if not in the long term, we're going to see more of that technology deployed. Um, and then once once things start to come back online, amusement parks, concert venues, those are going to be areas where there's going to be growth as well. But I and, and the final one I'll tell you that we see a lot of upside in is uh, payment systems, the finance sector. They're just waking up to biometrics in a lot of ways. They've been using it in a lot of ways, but mainstream adoption, it, it's something that, 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 that we see big in the next five years. Why do you think there's been a lag there? And I'll tell you the little background on this, which was, geez, at this point, 12 years ago, the Norwegian Central Bank gave me a, a briefing on how they were moving from credit cards to putting everything on your mobile phone. And this is, of course, what China's doing as well. And I talked to one of the big credit card companies here and said, why aren't you guys doing this? And I was like, wow, there are regulatory obstacles, blah, blah, blah. Why do you think the lag is in the payment sector when this one would seem to offer some real opportunities for them? Brent, I don't know if you want to tackle that one from a 
I think I, I would say that there's probably some some regulatory obstacles as well. I, I I think that I can I can tell you from a technology and a business perspective, what we've seen is there's the system we have in place leverages cards, right? And a lot of those physical cards people are attached to, they're comfortable with. There's an adoption factor uh, and getting consumers comfortable with it. That's one of the things I've seen on our side. Um, this migration to a digital wallet's been slower than we expected. Um, but I'm sure there's some policy and regulatory aspects to it as well. Yeah, uh, agree with you, Benji. I think there are some some uh, regulatory issues in the financial sector, and I think some of it really is just the advancements of of the technology. You know, pretty much all the use cases we've talked about, and really the growth, uh, particularly in facial recognition, is due to the uh, extreme advancement in the in the accuracy and performance of this technology in the last several years. So, you know, for that, you know, from from a use case perspective, confirming identity for financial transactions is one of those, you know, high mm-hmm. bar requirements, much like, you know, on par with the U.S. government identity verification for border crossings and things like that. So, um, you know, granted, five years ago, facial recognition performance uh, wasn't to the point where banks were going to be comfortable with that from an identity verification perspective, like they might be with a with a fingerprint or another modality. So it's really the advancements in FR to the point they are now uh, where you're getting that interest, where they have that comfort from a risk perspective and identity verification that they can, I think, put the greater trust in it as a as a tool for uh, for payments and other, you know low risk tolerance uh, transactions. That's a good lead into the next question, which is one of the things that a couple of the Asian governments I've talked to have said is that they're they're really concerned about accuracy. And in some ways they wonder if there are Chinese systems that are more accurate. Um, What do you think about we, part two of this question will be about the NIST tests and where people stand on that. So one of the Asian governments said to me, I think it was Singapore, you know, six out of the top 10 uh, FR products that NIS has tested are Chinese. Um, when you look at the market, who do you see, who do you see coming up on you? Is it China? Is it, uh, wh- what do you say to that? So this is Benji, I'll tackle that one. So I, I would say that absolutely China has made a lot of uh, advancements in the technology. You know, one thing that's uh, important for folks to remember is, relatively speaking, this is still a young technology. In 1999, NIST NIST made their first public call for facial recognition algorithms to test. And there were only four submissions, four. Now today, 20 years later, you've got over a hundred companies. You've got, uh, I think in the last test, there were about 150 algorithms that were tested. Now, those are from all over the world. And a lot of those are from leading companies like NEC, uh, but also there's big players like Microsoft that are in the top 10 all of a sudden. So while there have been a lot of advancements on, on the algorithm front from China, we also see some movers and shakers from Silicon Valley. We see new algorithms that have broken the top 10. And then also, you know, we're, we're very proud at NEC that we consistently are number one uh, in performance and accuracy for 10 years running. So um, the answer is yes, there have been a lot of advancements, but I, th- I see a lot of different countries catching up as well. Um, what do you think of the NIST process? I mean, I'll, and I ask that with this perspective on it, which is that when, whenever I read about it in the, the media, it's the, the stories seem to be almost always wrong. I, I don't want to lead you down any path, but when you, 
you know, how, what's it like working with NIST? What do you think of it? Why do people misunderstand it so much? Yeah, I, so I think the first reason that people misunderstand it is it's very technical, right? And there's no executive summary up front that explains it in a non-mathematical and a non-engineering manner. And one of the things we've pushed NIST for is, is to have that very plain language up front and simple, kind of like the, the, you know, after the, the 2008 crash, when the government pushed for very simple terms of how much money are you paying on this loan, right? How much, how much money and interest are you paying? Something like that, or a, or a calorie reading is something that we've often pushed for that would be very helpful for consumers to understand the technology. And, and also, you know, what we often hear is you need a PhD to understand it. The, the, the report itself, the big one, the, the one that often matters the most for our industry is one to many. And that one's usually about 100 pages. So again, it's like nobody has the, the ability or the, the attention span today to sort of sift through all that. Um, so, but, you know, uh, the other thing that we've often pushed for as well, and Brent, I, I encourage you to comment here as well, is we've encouraged for uh, an increase in the, the volume of tests and the release of information so that we can educate the public uh, faster, right? I think that would help the industry as well. Um, Brent, what do you think we could do to make the uh, NIST product, which I like, you know, so, cause it's a cheat sheet. What could we do to make the NIST product a little more useful on the Hill? Yeah, that is a, uh, a regular topic of discussion. I think, um, NIST recognizes that. I think they've they've made attempts within within their um, groups to try to improve the the readability and doing some some engagement because they're getting more folks interested. But I think they'll be the first to admit there's still work to go on that. And of course, with their limited resources, they're rightfully focused on the detailed testing and get that technical feedback and assessments because that's what's, you know, driving the innovation and pushing people to improve and is really important for federal government acquisition and other for acquisition to to look at how algorithms perform. So I think, you know, nobody ever wants to be the be the messenger of this, especially straight to OMB. But, you know, they need more resources for this. I think uh, that's recognized. We've seen that in the committees of jurisdiction. You've got basically a handful of folks currently working face recognition algorithms. And it is such a hot topic. They are the gold standard internationally. I mean, that is resident within the U.S. government, which we, you know, is is something that is such a, a value to the to the country. And you see that, right? Every international company out there is submitting their their algorithms to NIST. So give them the resources to be able to, to expand upon their testing. I think doing, as Benji mentioned, doing more regular periodic updates on on algorithms as they're updating so quickly. Folks are making acquisition decisions off of that, have a little bit more responsiveness to that. I know they're working on automating some of that. So there's a little less manpower requirements and some of what they're doing so they can focus on sort of some of the next generation testing they're doing, some of the important work they're doing on uh, demographic effects and other issues related to algorithms, and then maybe able to spend a little bit more time packaging things for for readers and you know capitol hill is important and they've been prioritizing that but we see you know this this stuff needs to be digested by state capitals by city governments that are out there making decisions about what to buy and from commercial entities too so it's it's not something they can just solve with a bunch of uh you know a handful of hill briefings they do need to be able to you know have the resources to be able to explain it better but then also i think 
to the broader point of just a broader education about facial recognition in the market uh, beyond it. So folks can interpret that and they can have, you know, informed discussion of folks taking mm -hmm. NIST results. Uh, and it's not just all on NIST to explain it. Yeah, no, we're big NIST fans here. We have the director down and we've done a lot of work with them on their framework. So that's a good topic for us to think about is how you get more resources. How many committees do you talk to on the Hill, Brent? I mean, what's, how many committees uh, have, a piece of this action yeah it's it's uh similar to the uh the uh claims of dhs of whatever they have to you know 93 committees or subcommittees they have to talk to uh it seems kind of yeah. similar in this this uh this vein largely because of the wide uh application of the technology you know you've got basically agencies across the federal government who recognize the value of this technology and they want to in incorporate it into their uh, into their system. So almost every committee out there that's got jurisdiction over any of the agencies, for sure on the national security and homeland security side, uh, and from an acquisition perspective, have a have an interest in this. And we see those we see the committees that are overseeing the actual agencies that are implementing it, able to mm -hmm. sort of dive deeper into the weeds of you know, how it's being implemented, what are the systems they're putting in place, how are they using the uh, technical data from NIST, and getting some some specific conversations about what are the right oversight mechanisms for those, which we think are is helpful. You know, these, the use cases, as we've talked about today, are so varied of this technology, you know, whether it's from border crossings to what Defense Department or State Department may be doing to stuff in the law enforcement, the DOG, DOJ space. And they each have their own sort of unique considerations from a from a oversight perspective. So it's uh, I think mm -hmm. it's important to have those sort of focused conversations um, instead of trying to do sort of a, a broad brush look like everything in stemming from this one technology has all the same implications. Yeah. What are the what are the normal questions you hear from these guys? I mean, is it, uh, we all see the press stuff, but what do you hear in addition to that? So for a long time, it really was state of the technology, which which is an understandable question, right? It was a rapidly improving and changing technology. And really, and some of that comes from what we've talked about, right? The challenges of sifting through a 100-page NIST report of uh, really where, where the technology is purely from an algorithm perspective, but then looking from a system as a, as a whole, right? The capture device, how you're networking it really operationally, what are the impacts of this and, and what are the, the performance levels? And with that, you know, concerns about variations from um, different uh, demographic effects, whether that's skin color, age, gender, uh, which are legitimate issues and very legitimate concerns, right? We don't want to be um, deploying technologies out there that, that disparately impact groups based upon things like their demographic considerations. So we were very pleased to see NIST do a, a important study and test on that this past year. And we're excited that they're going to continue that work. And we think that's been an important educational tool for folks um, on the state of the technology. And then I think the other, the other good questions are, are some of those use case specific things, right? What are the what are the acquisition um, parameters that should be put in this, like for testing and accuracy? You know, what are what are the expectations we think of transparency? And some of these go well beyond the technology, right? This is you know what's what is what should be the burden on DHS or DOJ for informing the public? And similar to NIST, you know, DHS is publishing publishing 
PIAs and SORNs, you know, their their impact assessments um, and doing engagement. But, you know, not many people are getting online and reading a 100-page document posted to <laughs> the DHS website before they go to the airport. So there's been a lot of engagement. And I think DHS, for sure, CBP has been very receptive to that of like, how can they how can they best inform the traveling public, engage folks? They've they've set out on a good yeah. public relations campaign, so people are not shocked when they come to the airports. There's a lot of that. You know, how do we interact with the citizenry uh, to build that public trust is important too. Yeah, it, that's increasing. Yeah, so um, we try to uh, do the best we can. You know, the challenge is you know 54 states and and territories sure. out there plus you know countless cities out there um so really what's important there is building the just sort of broader information resources out there we've tried to be um, a resource for legislators and states that are looking at um, policy making on this front which we think is is a good thing right we're, we're encouraging and and want to be helpful to those efforts and we think there's value to that not just in the u.s but globally so we want to be helpful on that front but there's only you know we only have the the bandwidth too to be a, a resource so i think it's it's been important for not just DC-based associations, but a lot of the user communities, right? Like for law enforcement groups to talk about how they're using it, for the travel industry and aviation to talk about those use case-specific implementations, because um, all this kind of story is different and how you want to uh, regulate it at the state level or city level is definitely different than than federal considerations. How much is this, of this is linked to the sort of state efforts on privacy? I mean, Federal privacy bill probably stalled at least until 2021, but some of the states seem to be moving ahead, particularly California. So does how much does facial recognition get tangled up in the privacy battle? Yeah, it does get tangled up. I think, you know, it's one of those hot button topics in the world of privacy uh, and data privacy that, that folks uh, see as something that they want to address, along with a, f a few other issues within the online world. So there's been varying attempts to either, uh, you know, many of these larger data privacy bills will have implications for biometrics and facial recognition, right? Biometric mm -hmm. biometric data is unique uh, unique data, it, it uh, and it should be addressed and treated sensitively, right? We do that as a company very intensively because of the nature of the business we are in and should be considered of such, I think, in larger data privacy considerations. But there are unique facial recognition things. So we have seen some states try to have facial recognition sections or separate bills, you know, when, when the bigger data privacy legislation can't move due to issues with, mm -hmm. uh, with enforcement or other sort of fundamental debates. Sometimes you know, doing something on facial recognition or some other uh, more niche topics end up being sort of the outlet they want to go forward with. So it is something we're we're paying attention to and trying to be helpful with. What do you think the future looks like? What could we do in the U.S.? How does the U.S. compare to other countries when it comes to deployment? I think it's what I think it's important. Uh, you know, as we've talked about and Benji talked about, a lot of these commercial use cases, um, we are seeing a similarity in alignment like in the world of travel, in customer experience, hospitality, things like that. In the, in the U.S., um, in North America, throughout Europe, uh, in East Asia. And similar to the larger data privacy conversations, I think how to, 
how to govern and set the example and set the policies uh, for technologies like this is important to get right and important for countries like the United States and Japan and Europe to lead on uh, and set that example. <clears throat> and I think this is this is just one example of many future artificial intelligence based technologies that will have considerations of how you want to use it, how you want to govern it, um, how how best it can you know serve the public and getting this right for facial recognition, I think is is an important uh, scene setter and uh, example to set on how we want to employ these technologies to best uh, you know improve the lives of our citizens uh, moving forward. It sounds grand, but I you know I think it is a it's sort of the yeah. leading edge of of many of these discussions we're going to have globally. One thing I would add is I, I and Brent alluded to it, but it, it it's this philosophical approach to privacy and how quickly the technology is adopted. Right, if you look at places like Europe, they were really quick to adopt different parts of the technology, you know, like in Great Britain, I know they're not part of the EU anymore, but you know, Great Britain adopted a lot of it. And then you had the continent adopting a lot of different types of biometric technology, but they were also quick to, to pass legislation, GDPR, right? And then in Asia, in yeah. China or Japan, you have a, a much larger embrace of the technology, whether it's for finance or border control or casinos or the gaming industry, they're very comfortable using the technology, right? Uh, facial recognition for physical access or for payment systems. But, you know, if you go back to the United States, we're much less quick, we're much slower in a lot of ways to create legislation, at least on the federal level. And as you're seeing at the state and local level, it's happening in pockets, uh, places where people are more prone to, to, to put legislation in place. They're, they're moving a lot forward. And then others are still having those conversations in places where they're not so quick to legislate. So I, for me, what I see from a business perspective is there's different approaches to how quickly they're going to adopt it and then how quickly or, or open they are to passing legislation and putting it in place. What would you do to accelerate things here in this country? I mean, if you had a wish list, what, what would the U.S. need to do to accelerate use? Well, I'll, I'll mention this and then I'd love Brent because he's more of an expert on the policy side. But I know one of the things we've often wanted is is uh, a nice piece of legislation that addresses the major topics that we're seeing in the technology. Um, you know, federal preemption is one thing I know we've talked about and getting that right to be able to get some sort of consistent message across the board uh, would help with the adoption of the technology and it would help to adopt it in the right way, right? We've touched upon some of the challenges that we're facing with the technology today. And as artificial intelligence starts to take off and, and be adopted in different aspects of our lives, we, we are going to need to be more nimble to, to, to face those challenges more quickly and to put legislation in place. But, um, you know, we're seeing challenges around the demographic side of the data, uh, the, the, the performance, of the algorithms and finding out ways to manage those which algorithms are better, which algorithms are worse, and, and NIST has a role to play in that. I think getting federal legislation in place that would take care of some of that at the top, as opposed to letting the states and the cities figure it out on their own, um, and then having a disjointed system across the United States, that, that, that presents a lot of challenges for private sector companies. And that's something that, that we've, I know Brent has spent a lot of time uh, trying to, 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 to work with decision makers and lawmakers on that front. Yeah. 
I agree with Benji, right? So that is kind of gets back to your point, Jim, about the larger data privacy conversation. And that and that's, you know, where, uh, yeah. of course, there's been a lot of uh, push from all, many fronts to get something at the federal level from larger data privacy and something that could be a federal standard, uh, which we equally are, would be very supportive of that and and not having this patchwork of, of different implications from, from uh, privacy regulations state by state. Mm-hmm. And then specific within the facial recognition space, um, there are unique considerations, and it would be helpful as well at the federal level, specific to, to biometric technologies, facial recognition, to set that example, right? I think folks are kind of grasping at you know different approaches, and there are some things that um, would definitely, I think, build public trust and uh, greater oversight and transparency from an acquisition perspective. And the federal government just setting that example of, you know, how, how we're going to buy the stuff, how we're going to um, talk with the public about it. Are there particularly use cases that they want to put restrictions around to build that trust? You know, this can easily this many other technologies in the space of AI can get people concerned, right? What are the, if you take this to the, to a deep, uh, you know, extreme of, of how things can be implemented, which, you know, there are many protections existing within our society, both constitutionally and legal to protect some of those, those directions. If that needs to be further codified to, to build that trust with folks, um, we think that's important and it would be very helpful. You know, that's from a regulating, regulating side, I think U.S. government continuing to lead on broader artificial intelligence initiatives is uh, is a good thing, right? This is uh, you know this gets into larger uh, geopolitical context and and technology leadership, but uh, the U.S. and allies looking at how they're going to invest in AI, how they're going to deal with issues of of data access and data sharing, and really continue to lead in this space. Again, you know, facial recognition is, I think, just sort of one example of, uh, you know, how we're going to navigate these these challenges moving forward. So I kind of, one of the things that shapes my thinking on this is that I kind of view it and uh, AI in general as sort of inevitable. I mean, it's like the next phase in automation it's uh, it's the next phase in identification but do you think it's inevitable and if it's inevitable does that mean the u.s is going to lead and if we're not going to lead what do we have to do so inevitable leadership what do you think i would say you know the natural u.s leadership in in places like this and uh, i uh, will say u.s and, and many of our close allies is through the commercial side, right? And that's really enabling our our commercial entities to continue to innovate, continue to lead. And that's really been, you know, the foundation of our policies to be a technology leader um, for through our history. Now that that does um, does need to be married with with focused uh, U.S. government R and D um, and finding those public and private partnerships to continue to advance. Uh, those opportunities, but it's really going to be obviously in our commercial sector, um, married mm-hmm. with with U.S. R and D investment that continues to have us along with close allies lead in this space. So um, I think we can get there. We're I think we're optimistic. We're uh, we're eager to be helpful in that process, and hopefully can you know continue to see growth in this space. Yeah, Jim, I'll I'll just put my own spin on it. I agree with what Brent's saying. Our R and D from the government side absolutely necessary. Uh, policy and legislation that doesn't restrict companies from developing and deploying the technology. We should obviously 
make sure that we are responsible as a nation around the types of laws that we put in place to, to prevent misuse of the technology, right? Along the lines of uh, racial bias or, or uh, you know, restricting people from demonstrating and, you know, things like that, that that have no place in our society absolutely should be uh, legislated against. But one thing that we're concerned about is this quickness, whether it, no matter what the AI technology is of restricting it for use or banning it across the country, I think that would prevent us from taking a leadership role in the world. And then the other thing I'll say is, you know, from an investment level, we have seen over the past five years, enormous amounts of money coming from uh, private equity firms or venture capital firms that are looking to invest in this types of technology. And, and, and you can see it by the sheer number of companies that have popped up. Uh, there's, there's more facial recognition companies over the past two to five years than there were in the last 10 or 20 years. And I think you're going to see more of that happen, but there's going to be slight variations in, in the types of companies that pop out, right? That's not just going to be a facial identification company. They're going to have algorithms that do more. They analyze the face or they analyze other aspects of, of what's going on around that individual uh, or they're going to combine it with other types of AI machine learning technology. So in order to be uh, a leader in the world, uh, we've got to be able to invest in it, have good legislation, but also from the private sector, have that, that demand signal. Um, but to your, to your original question, I think it is inevitable. I think it is a wave that, that the genie can't be put back in the bottle. Yeah. So um, we're pretty much close to the end of our time. Did we miss anything? Is there anything you want to end on i mean a genie back in the bottle is a good ending point but what what did we not talk about that we should have i think the one thing i forgot to mention jim was um we we also have done a pilot with uh the uh, u.s soccer hall of fame where uh, <laughs> yeah which is pretty fun right so that's where if you're a if you're a bullish soccer fan and you want to go to the soccer hall of fame you can opt in answer a short questionnaire and as you go through the, uh, the, 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 the museum, you can, have, you can interact with the exhibits. It'll pop up your favorite player. It'll pop up your favorite position or different stats that are tailored to you. So that's just another use case, another example, a fun example of how the technology is used. Uh, Rent, we miss anything? I'm going to tell my younger son that. But... Oh, is he a soccer fan? That's good. <laughs> He's a soccer player. Uh, oh, good. I would say my my last uh, saved comment, not as fun as uh, the National Soccer Hall of Fame, which is pretty fantastic, um, a little bit more um, um, serious one on um, uh, the responsibility. We know we've talked a lot about the, the role of government in legislating on this topic. You know, we think that is that's important and needs to be closely married with companies focused on how they're implementing technologies like this. It's something NEC takes very seriously, you know, in our broader AI portfolio, but, uh, but very specific due to our leadership in biometrics and facial recognition um, in doing those things from product design to um, how we work with our customers and finding the right partners, how we're deploying our products. You know, these are all things that we think this is a, an important partnership, both from the commercial side and from from a, a regulatory and legal side to uh, to see this technology move forward. So I just want to put that that small point in there on you think uh, how we how we push this uh, technology and employ it into the future. So thanks. Great. That's probably a good note to end on. So we'll stop there. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.